Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Congratulations on the film. Oh, thank you. And um, <laughs> since we're doing your entire life story today, could you just straighten out the chronology? You, this was a film that you, you had written before you went into production on Superband? Uh, yeah, I was... I first thought of this, I, uh, the idea for this film while I was working on the TV show Undeclared, uh, a show that Judd Apatow produced. Yeah. And I was working with a lot of young people. Seth Rogen was probably only about 18 when we were doing that show. And I got it in my head. I wanted to write a movie about first love. Um, but, you know, more about messy relationship version of first love story. Not, not, not so um, slick in Hollywood. Um, and I was thinking of movies like Fast Times at Richmond High that went back and forth between being ridiculous and hilarious uh, and also very sad stuff. Um, and then more, you know, in-between humor about terrible jobs. And it was just a movie I remembered as being very accurate to what, what life was like at the time. Uh, and then one night I was out with a bunch of the writers of the show. And we were talking about the worst jobs we ever had. And I, I relayed related some stories of working in an amusement park and one of my friends said oh, that's you should write about that and i thought well that might be a good setting for my first love story and that's when i made the decision to make it a period piece okay and i know we have some people from uh, farmingdale in the audience so this was a real um real amusement park on long island yes it was real amusement park on long island uh it's it's uh or not in case they're very litigious um, no, but uh, it's. Any lawyers here today? I'm covering myself. No, uh, it is. And oh, you also asked about the chronology, just mm-hmm. f- for the sake of that. I wrote this, was about to try and get it made with Ted and Ann. Ted and Ann were, were helping me um, work on the script and make it better. And we finally got to the point that we thought, this is in shape to show people. And then Judd Apatow called and said, do you want to do super bad? Um, it was really within days of when we were going to start showing it around. Mm-hmm. And but, but as I recall, you called very sheepish, sheepishly and said, I think I'm going to do this uh, little direct-to-DVD feature. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing this little exploitation teen comedy. And, right. uh, and, and Ted was like, oh. Starring nobody, nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. So... So, but it, you know, I did love that script. And then I thought after it, should I be making another movie about young people? Will I be in the young adult section of Netflix for the rest <laughs> of my life? Um, but, you know, I felt like it was, it overlapped in many obvious ways, but it was such a different tone. It was coming at it from another direction. Uh, and all the sort of the more silly and or vulgar things in Adventureland, pretty much in the script, it wasn't like super bad. Uh, pushed me in that direction. There are some people I grew up with here tonight who can attest that the character of Frigo mm-hmm. is not dissimilar to the guy who lived in the house between our houses, uh, <laughs> who, if he were here today, I would have to wear a cup. Um, <laughs> Did you have bosses like Bob and Juliet? I mean, yeah, I have vague recollection of the people who ran Adventureland. We didn't shoot at the Adventureland of Farmingdale because now it's, much, it's a much nicer, cleaned-up, a family-friendly place. It didn't have. It doesn't retain the aura of of you know 
dirt bags that it had back in the 80s. It's a nice place now. Uh, and it's much more corporate. I mean, a lot of, like, like much of America and, and much of New York City, um, everything's been bought up by corporate chains. And, right. and we needed to find a place that felt like it could be the time period. We didn't have a giant budget. And uh, Ted and I, were, and I were talking about this a lot. And we, the two amusement parks that were on the National Historic Register are Kennywood in Pittsburgh and Rye Playland in New York. Uh, our money would go further in Pittsburgh. They have better tax rebates than the state of New York. But also, I went to college at Carnegie Mellon, Pittsburgh, uh, just you know, driving around it. At first, we thought, well, maybe we could shoot Long Island, pretend it's Long Island, and shoot Pittsburgh. But ultimately, Pittsburgh itself uh, felt like such a great place to set this movie that it, it had its own great qualities and places and things about it hasn't haven't changed as much as a place like Long Island and. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm really glad we made that decision. So could you talk about that, sort of finding this amusement park and then what was involved in filming there from the producer's standpoint? Well, it, it was really as Greg, Greg said, you know, as we started kind of looking for places that were affordable to shoot, Kenny would quickly, you know, <laughs> jump to the top of the, yeah. the charts. And it being an old park, it was family-owned. It was the only the, – the, the family-owned three – amusement parks so it was one of the very few amusement parks that wasn't a corporate you know a corporate brand so it didn't have all of those you know cute and cuddly characters from saturday morning cartoons and all that stuff um there's one in texas and then there's kennywood Hmm. you know so so you know we quickly it's a one hour and a half two hour plane ride so it was a quick scout over there Hmm. um and i they nailed it, and we went there, and the rest was beautiful. Yeah, they were very nice, very cooperative. About a week or two after shooting, we read that they had sold the amusement park to some big uh, Spanish multinational interest. So I think ultimately they let us do that because <laughs> they thought, well, if these idiots break the roller coaster, <laughs> someone else's problem. Uh, but it, it did have a, it did have that mom and pop feel. And to go back to your original question, there were bosses at the Adventureland, and they had a kind of hilarious um, impresario quality as if running an amusement park is a form of show business. Uh, it's like outsider art for acting. They, they really saw themselves this way. And, but, you know, at the same time, these are – I don't know if other people find them funny. I hope they do. But I am amused by people – the kind of jokes in the movie that are people who take incredibly mundane things way too seriously. Um, the fact that all the games are rigged was absolutely true. And, you know, even in the 80s, I was thinking, what are you saving an extra $10 a month by rigging these games? But I think it's a code of the carnival. Uh, And and the Flying Dutchman, wasn't that? The Flying Dutchman was based on a a New York State uh, amusement park called Adventurers Inn, not to be confused with Adventureland, that had a haunted house ride called Flyth to Mars. And they just never, they couldn't afford to change the sign, so it was just flight oh to Mars forever. <laughs> um, I, what I like about Bob and Juliet is they're, they, be, I started thinking of them as sort of surrogate parents. Like, the parents in the film are interesting because, because uh, you're, you're, like, you're, you're very compassionate. One thing that we've been seeing in all the films today is like you're very compassionate to all the characters, even the ones we kind of laugh at. Um, but the, some of the parents in the film, I think, are sort of shown are unsympathetic well i mean i just wanted to create a world where the young people in the the film are 
you know, don't necessarily have somewhere to turn yeah. for for advice, for guidance. Um, particularly, Jesse's character is surrounded by people who are stuck um, in some way or another, including Martin Starr's characters. Very sympathetic to him, and, and they have a lot in common, but that guy isn't quite at the point in his life that he's ready to just take on the challenge of what to do or change about his life. And uh, so I wanted to put him in a predicament where uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very immature guy in many ways. He's very naive, and he doesn't know where to turn, and he has to kind of find it in himself to make a decision about what he feels about this, this woman who's complicated, this young woman who's complicated and brings a lot of baggage and is still trying to process a very painful um, tragedy in her life. And, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of people would run away from someone like that, and you couldn't entirely blame them. But I want to, I hope the feeling is by the end of the film, even if she kicks him out as the credits are rolling, yeah. it was a good thing for him to, uh, to take that risk, that that's a, a step in the right direction in his yeah. life. I always like, but. You, you had said about love that that's your cue. That's like a setup. Well, I don't remember <laughs> what you, I you, you, you always talking about, when we were prepping the movie it was like learning that when you really love somebody it's not that it's this blissful place but you finally make yourself vulnerable to being hurt and yeah you, the, 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 the person the person the person you fall in love with is a person who can hurt you the most but also that He's a guy who needed to learn that, uh, you know, some fantasy of soulmates, which is what a lot of romantic comedies are about, uh, is a fantasy. And that love is actually about accepting the person for who they are and, 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 and loving their flaws as, as well as their strengths. And I, I love the scene when, when, she, when, he, when Jesse's character, you know, goes to, you know, sees her and confronts her in front of Connor's house. And she's like... I'm the stupid one, and he, he just doesn't know what to do. Like, he's he's um, doesn't understand how to act at that moment. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, he doesn't know, he doesn't know how to have a conversation. He's not quite at that point yet. Um, although when I was shooting that scene, I thought, this is an, an awful lot like the scene in Superbad where Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah are yelling at each other on the street, and Jonah Hill gets hit by a car, so I thought, hmm. <laughs> Maybe he should get hit by a car. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's he he doesn't know how to, and he's and you know there's a kind of slight gender reversal, I guess, with them that he's he's the guy who's um, so vulnerable and uh, the romantic and all that. Yeah, I just want to ask you something. This is could be actually for all of you uh, or any of you. Um, this is not super bad. Was a genre film, and this is not a sort of genre film in a way. It's I mean, it's not a typical teen comedy, even though the characters are are, uh, teens. How do you decide about sort of the look and feel and style of the film? Um, It's it's a beautifully produced film. It has a, um, you know, it doesn't have sort of of the rawness and crudeness of Superbad. It has um, the particular style of the film is very, very different. Um, so I'm just wondering, sort of, from both of your standpoints, from sort of what goes into the production side, and then how you think. First about thing that. Greg said was it had to be shot on film. Yeah, he, I remember. I was just going to say that he came to us saying it needed to be shot on film, and it needed to have a camera that moved, and it mm. couldn't be multi-camera TV shooting, and it needed to be period, which was really important because I think had we not made it period, we probably could have made it sooner. But um, the with, decision to yeah, keep it more, in 1987, um, mm. which confounded a lot of the financiers, was really important 
decision. That was the first thing that people wanted to chip away at when we went out was why does it have to be period? Right. Boom. Why does it have to be period? Well, especially after doing super bad, it just seemed, you know, if they're going to try and sell it from the, the, the get go, they want to sell it as from the director of super bad and right. a connection to it. And, you know, being a period piece, they feel like, um, the younger audience is going to say, this isn't my generation. And the older right. audience is going to say, this is a kid's film. And I understand that challenge. Yeah. Um, but for me, I thought, well, yeah, it's a challenge, and challenges aren't always a bad thing. It's right. you know, but also the I mean, I held on to the period piece thing probably because the details of it would be coming from my own life, and I wanted it to feel like a story that just happened to have taken place twenty years ago. There's a certain melancholy to things from the past. Uh, and you never could have had Rock Me Amadeus. Torment, yeah. I know, it would have been some Miley Cyrus song. That's not as much fun. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I mean, there's, there have been other movies about the 80s. I didn't want this to be a kitsch fest about the 80s. Um, of course, once you start looking into the hairstyles and clothes, you don't have much of an alternative. But in Pittsburgh, they're very nice there, but I, I have to say there's some segments of the population that luckily still love to wear acid wash and mullets. So that was helpful <laughs> that in casting actors, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's take some questions from the audience, and I'll, I'll uh, repeat so everybody can hear. Go here. Okay, he's saying that he thinks that you use more close-ups in this film than in, in the other ones that we've seen. So what, what's your thinking there? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, sometimes you're doing that on a, a lowish budget film to, so you don't see the stuff you don't want to see, uh, <laughs> like signage and whatever. But but in... Fall leaves, yeah. We were shooting a summer movie in October and November. That became... The last scene we shot, it snowed. It's not in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one scene that I had very little coverage because it starts snowing out the window. Um, but, you know, it, to me, it was all in the actors' faces. I mean, I really... I did... The more I started to work on it, the more I started to, to rehearse and set up shots, the more it just felt like... We needed to be in close and see that the, the emotions would be subtle. We'd need to see the performances. Um, it's not, it's the jokes aren't usually hard jokes in the movie. Uh, and you know, I guess I also really liked the actors' faces. They're all people like Kristen Stewart was my first choice for that part. I auditioned other people, I didn't audition Kristen because I just felt she would get it. She's someone I really enjoy watching, um, do reaction shots. Uh, it's pretentious, but Orson Welles said the difference between theater and film is that film makes thinking a dramatic act. And if you look at all those Oscar montages every year, half the time it's actors just thinking or emoting. Uh, and I really like to watch Kristen. Um, she's, you know, there's a lot going on in her face, and I felt like I had to get in there and see it. But the, the script from the very beginning opened as it does in the, the movie. It specified very much that we were watching Jesse and you know in close and that that whole sequence and I think that probably dictated that was always in your head and I'm sure that dictated the tone and the style of the film. Yeah, and also because Jesse, I wanted him to have that um, yearning look on his face through so much of the movie, which he does very well and a very open, unguarded way, which hopefully undercuts his foolishness and his pretentiousness. And, you know, I mean, I yeah. did make fun of... I do make pick on the characters, but I certainly picked yeah. on myself quite a bit <laughs> for <laughs> that character. Right. 
Okay. So, so, uh, yeah, I guess the question is about your evolution as a writer, that you're exploring some of the same themes, um, you know, in both Day Trippers and, and this film. And if you could talk about your evolution as a writer. You know, I mean, I, I, on some level, I wish I probably was further along in my evolution as a writer, but I tend to really love um, personal storytellers. I, I like people who take things from their own experience and tell stories in a certain way that, you know, are specific. Like, I really love Squid and the Whale, and that takes place in a very specific world, and the Park Slope, Brooklyn, at a certain time, of certain kinds of intellectuals and their problems, and I like that. That feels, you know, this movie was a bit of a short story kind of vibe in my head, or a pop song um, brought to life. So, you know, I, I think, I think it's it is weird to have these three movies shown together. Um, I see. Uh, the similar flaws, I see the similar strengths, I see different things. Um, I, I'd like to go in another direction, work with people over the age of 21 and things like that. Uh, <laughs> I am, was going backwards age-wise. But, uh, you know, I'm sure the next thing, I'm writing something that's a personal New York set film. I'm sure certain obsessions and themes will go into it that are similar. And I think that's, I hope that's okay. I mean, you know. I love Woody Allen. I love Francois Truffaut. These are people who, who really went back to the same themes from different directions. And I'd like to find maybe you know other styles. Um, I've been, for many years been writing a, a ghost story with Campbell Scott, which has all the same themes, but it's it's my big clever trick is to disguise it as a horror film and do the exact same thing again, but with a ghost. <laughs> I mean, one thing is you're interested in the idea of transformations. You know, each of the films is set in this sort of either a day of transformation or here in summer. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that, that, that that's something that happens more in youth. I mean, the younger characters. Yeah. yeah. Where they're, you know, you feel their whole... These are like... They're not, none, of them are, none of the main characters are looking for life-changing moments, and they, but they sort of get it full into them. Yeah, and they're so unfixed. They're at that point that they're, they're, yeah. they're not fixed in some identity yet. Yeah. So Con the character of Connor, who Ryan plays, like he enjoyed that he character who could have been a total dick, but uh, you make them human. Which we could probably say this about a lot of the characters in your films. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like movies where no one's the hero, no one's the villain. I mean, he's ostensibly the worst person in the script, maybe in the movie. I don't know. I mean, I wanted him to feel like someone you meet in life, and and by design, I really tried to stay away from certain melodramatic elements which you know may be not the best strategy because it's a very low-key film and good unwanted pregnancy can spike things <laughs> no 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 but i mean we it's couldn't it's, use it because in real life the guy did get the kristen stewart character pregnant <laughs> and we would have been sued so we couldn't do that and that child is here today um <laughs> he's uh he he is based a bit on someone i knew who was a character that we laughed at and admired simultaneously and uh, is, you know, the, you know, one of the films that made me want to write this uh, shockingly was Fellini's E Vitalone, which has, is a story about aimless young men. Uh, it's like the first slacker movie. It's, it's, right. it's, it's Seth Rogen <laughs> with pasta. Um, it's no, no, beautiful, beautiful film. It inspired Barry Levinson's Diner. Um, but it's one of the great movies of... 
about people who are stuck in their lives, actually. The main character is the only one who has, has a coming of age, um, the, the, the sort of central figure of this ensemble. And there's one character in that movie who is a Lothario um, that I thought about a lot. It was just a great... It was just a great example of people not being able to escape their psychology or their nature. And I wanted Ryan to play this guy, you know, sort of pissed off all the time, as if something something bad has happened to him and, and it's not fair. And he has this sense, uh, you know, that he's been ripped off and therefore he's allowed to sleep with other women. He's allowed to sleep with young girls. So it doesn't matter because, he, you know, it's all justified in his mind because most people justify their actions at the end of the day. And he, Ryan has a really nice acting moment, I think, where he gets called on the Lou Reed song. And it's not so much like a big, oh, you've gotten your comeuppance. It's kind of like him just smiling and saying, yeah, I'm full of shit. Life goes on. We all know it. You know it. I'm going to go back to flirting with these girls who aren't my wife. But there were all kinds of discussions at one point about whether there should be a scene where James really tells him off, remember? And, I mean, you really held firm to the idea that that was not a confrontation that would happen. By leaving, he was, he was you know, by by leaving and getting the girl. Yeah, that was, was winning, his victory. That was a big, yeah. that, I remember there were big discussions about whether or not, there, with the studio, about whether or not that needed to be, like, a he, more heated moment. Hmm. But you chose to play it in that way where... Connell, like you said, kind of lets in that he's and he knows James. He is has some him, yeah, self awareness. But James just James doesn't need to say anything. He gets to leave, which is I thought such a nice decision ultimately. Or completely non dramatic. Or completely non dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the question about the soundtrack, and there is a, actually a great article in the New York Times today that talks a lot about the music in the film. But if there were any um, songs that you really had to fight for, and I guess if um, you or I'm sure you gave your producers uh, yeah, a, I mean, a task to get I mean, all these music. I mean, Ted and Ann are big music lovers, too. And so they really, you know, felt strongly that we all had to fight for a lot of things. Um, just to put it in perspective, and the article in The Times says this, and it's true, in Superbad we have a Van Halen song, Panama, which cost... That one song cost almost the entire music budget for Adventureland. And you can make different deals if you're a low-budget indie film but you know we had to write a lot of letters and do a lot of personal begging and call on a lot of favors and jump through a lot of hoops and you know these guys were tireless in helping me get the songs i wanted and because you know they also love music as much as they do suggesting ideas um and uh you know there's two kinds of music in the film there's the stuff the top 40 stuff and then there's the the stuff that Kristen and and jesse's characters listen to which is, you know, meant to bond them immediately that like, oh, you're like me in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it certainly was the music I was listening to at that time. Um, and uh, means a lot to me personally. You always wonder, is it going to feel like, oh, the record, the record collection of the director? But I didn't know where else to go but to the stuff I loved. Um, and And try not to, you know, try to still use the music Almost always it's on because someone is turned on, you know, the radio or put it, or it's playing over the loudspeakers of the park or someone's put on a record. There's only one or two instances of it being used as score. And I wanted to, even though there's so much music, I wanted to do the score idea of music telling you what to think a bit sparingly. And then we got Yola Tango to do the actual score. And I wanted a rock band, that instrumentation, and I knew they could do more ambient, subtle music that wouldn't tell you what to think that is more oblique which I love and they do extremely well and I'm a huge fan of them also so. but 
From, from the very beginning, when Greg delivered the first scripts, he delivered CDs. I think it was a two-volume set, oh. you know, and I think Greg did probably four or five volumes along the way, you know, of all the music that he wanted. And, you know, this was made for a suppressed budget, you know, but we always knew Greg, Greg had big desires. So there was always that, that difference of, you know, you slot in one number, which is the reasonable 50% of what you actually end up spending. And that's your, everyone's carrot. You know, hopefully we'll save enough money that we can give Greg everything that he wants. You know, what is it? 55 cues or something in the, in the movie. And we have like literally like $12 left. You know, at the end, we can't take the post crew out for dinner, you know, for other than a slice of pizza. Yeah, we spent know? every single cent of that. But, you know, Ted and Ann and their wisdom and Miramax also really said, let's, you know, proportionally put aside a lot of money for music. They, they weren't unrealistic. They're were smart about it. And we just made it go really far. And, you know, it's fun things like getting a Rolling Stones song in the movie. It's not one of their most famous songs, but it's one I remember vividly from having that record at a key point in my life in the early 80s, late 70s. And we had to send that scene of Lisa P's uh, introduction to all the members of the band. And presumably someone watched it because we waited two months and then one day suddenly we got a call. We sent it all over the world. We yeah, kept like sending to, it. Oh, they're in Zanzibar. Oh, no, they're in Mozambique. Or yeah. They're in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. But, but really, we, we, yeah. we have a uh, Lou Reed to thank for a lot because he signed in, yeah, signed that, down that, early. That made a huge difference. Yeah. And come on, he's Lou Reed. He's Lou Reed, and <laughs> and and that little subplot. I when I wrote it, I you know thought I, it, there's a very very short list of people it can be, or else I'm just taking it out of the script because I'm not going to go down the line until it's like Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> my eight-year-old would have been very happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Right down in front. Uh, <laughs> heaven? Can I say that? No, it's fantastic. I mean, you, the, no disrespect to the to the Weinstein's. They've made a lot of great films, but it's uh, no. It's I think I, you know I didn't work with them, so I've heard stories. All I can know is I've heard stories, and 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 Miramax is is just really been wonderful. They're a, a pleasure to work with. <laughs> we, we, we've worked with both incarnations, and we've benefited tremendously from both. The current is filled with a lot of really smart people in many different positions. I kind of felt that although the, the, the brothers Weinstein did train a lot of people who were great at their jobs, they kind of left very quick, quickly, you know, uh, two-year, three-year, five-year. But right now, it it's a whole group of great executives that, you know, it doesn't feel like the kind of fiefdom that it, that it did then, that, that people are inspired. And we've, we've uh, had many more direct one-to-one uh, relationships with everyone in the different departments, all who are, you know, feel very personally motivated. So it's, it's been very helpful that way. Yeah, and they really worked hard to make the movie better, I think. And I think in many cases they... They let us find our own movie and let Greg do a lot of things, but always had good. They had, they had plenty to say, but it was always in service of making the, the best movie we could make, I think. Yeah, and a lot of people didn't want to let me make a period film, and they did. And they once once they accepted that, they really got behind it. And, uh, you know, it's 
It's hard right now. It's 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 not so much hard. I mean, it's hard enough to to make a film. It's very very hard to to face the competition of all the other films out there. The competition for screens. Um, there's no business in small movies that do little, you know, tiny runs around the country. That I'm, you know, I mean, it happens. But ten years ago, when I did Day Trippers, it was a different business. Right. The the um, interest that's evident in Russian literature that we've seen in your films is that. It's that no. It's from? definitely, you know, if I had to choose, probably my favorite. You know land of literature uh you know I, i'm i i mean i love chekhov i love dostoevsky i love turgenev um and gogol these are just people who meant a lot to me um um my wife is russian so <laughs> <laughs> really russians are awesome <laughs> how different is the finished movie from the original script um the first yeah the script i first wrote is unfilmable um it's <laughs> It's it varies in small ways. It was a little more, probably a little more sexual, and we toned that down. It just didn't seem necessary. Um, it was a combination of Kristen being young, um, but really also just feeling like those scenes were gratuitous. What was left to the imagination would would be better, um, and uh, it's it's it captures a lot of what was on the page. I think. For better or worse. A uh, general question about the casting. And he loved everybody in the everybody in the film. And if you could talk a bit about getting this cast, I, I was, you know, I, I I have to say I was really lucky. Um, you know, Ted and Ann's company has a great reputation, and coming off of Super Bad, there it, it definitely raised awareness of who I am. And then some people are friends, like, but you know, Bill Hader, his agent didn't want him to do the movie because it's a supporting role in a smaller film. They want him to be starring in movies and becoming the next Jim Carrey. And Bill's incredibly loyal and likes to do things that are, you know, he just wants to do things that interest him. Uh, so, you know, to take a small part like that in this film and for Kristen Wiig to do the same thing, I, I, I was I was really so pleased and, and, and fortunate. Um, Kristen and Jesse were my first choices. Jesse, I was a little hesitant for a second because I loved Squid and the Whale so much and there's some overlaps of the character, but I met with them and I, I just knew immediately that there's no one else that I, I, I would like as much. Um, Martin, a bunch of people read for that part. Martin's the only person who made it, um, made him sweet and soulful and not just annoying. Guy. He was the only skinny guy who read for the part. He was the only skinny guy who read for the part, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's it like it definitely overlaps with some of the Judd Apatow talent pool. Um, what's really nice about that is it feels like a roving theater company. I mean, I'm just working with my friends, and uh, I I really do like actors a lot, and uh, so I try to make them happy so they want to come back again. But that that question's kind of tied into the question about the studio and what this could have been like if it was with a different uh, studio and that we started shooting this movie I think on October 2nd and went out with this script like the week or two weeks before uh, Superbad had opened which was like August 14th we had super short you know 
basically like a 10-week period before we looked for financing and then we started shooting. And so nobody was really attached. Greg wanted Jesse. I think he was there. Kristen Stewart was still kind of an unknown. She hadn't done Twilight yet, so she meant absolutely nothing and was a big liability because she was under the age of 18, so it affected the whole shooting schedule and all of that. And so we had to be with a company that really believed in Greg's choices and the whole pool because we had to be making decisions very quickly along the way. And nobody in the group is like this kind of star that finances a movie. So luckily we had a very supportive environment that allowed Greg to you know, chase the folks that he wanted and to, to lock them pretty quick too. Yeah, and I, and I have a really good psychic who told me that Twilight was going to be huge. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the TV? There seems to be a uh, strong TV campaign. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of commercials. Maybe it's just L- a- luckily the studio. We, we've done an incredible amount of testing, yeah. and it it shows that the film is you know a huge success already. So they can spend tons of money, and they believe in the movie. It's <laughs> you know you, you walked in here, you had to love the movie. It was already proven. <laughs> okay. Okay, I guess was there any shot or scene that was that was particularly hard to shoot? Or any scene? Starting at day one, ending at day thirty-two, <laughs> <laughs> everything in between. Uh, the shooting, uh, even though it was the very beginning of the of the shoot, doing the pool scene was hard because it was very cold for the actors, and we didn't really have enough time to 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 do that. That was stressful. Um, the car wreck. Hard, yeah, we had not enough time to shoot that, but uh, but you know, but that's the nature of making movies. You never have enough time. The the beauty of the movie was though shooting in an amusement park, so we were there for about sixty percent of the time. So you could actually have a movie that didn't have quite as much prep because you knew you were in the same location, hmm. you know, all, all the time. And there was some stuff we got to reshoot, you know, to make sure it was as Greg wanted it because it's much easier to plan when you're there all the time. Um, yeah. So any Although time having we were to out like, of the park, it was tough. Yeah, having to start amusement park rides every time you want to start a shot and having extras vomiting because they've been on the ride ten times in a row <laughs> it really makes the actors think twice if they're going to like know their lines Children. or not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's sort of a question about your writing process. How much do you like really try to write things exactly as you want to film them, and how much do you sort of leave open? It's, I, I mean, you know, I said this in an earlier Q and A. There are certain filmmakers um, who uh, are so precise, and and you know, like the Coen Brothers, for instance, are a great example of of they they the actors don't change any of their lines. They they storyboard every shot. They do it exactly the way they see in their head. But, you know, the films are designed that way uh, from the get-go. And, you know, they're also fantastic writers. And they're, they're, they have a love of words and language that isn't necessarily where I come from. Um, I probably come from a love of pictures and actors and, and am willing to go the direction that I think is going to be stronger in the moment. Uh, it's, you know, also something you have to be open to if you're shooting on a certain budget. You can't, you know, if you get really strict, um, you could you could be missing um, great, better ideas around you. I, you know, I also said this earlier, but Woody Allen is a hero. He lets his actors 
change the words. And even though he's an amazing writer, uh, he, he gives them a freedom to make it their own and try and capture lightning in a bottle and not rehearse it and really let the actors make it feel like it's the first time it's happened. Um, you know, you, you try all these techniques. Um, I tried some of what I learned working with Judd Apatow. Judd comes from a school of you shoot and you shoot and everyone stands on a mark and they say their lines a different way uh, and then you can recut it a hundred different ways in the editing room because they've said you know ten variations of every single line uh, that's also limiting in its way because you can't move the camera as much or change the blocking these these are all techniques that you try and mix and match and figure out which are which are what's your style uh, every film I've done, I've vacillated between keeping the camera still for periods of the movie and then and then getting more erratic with handheld stuff because I I like the juxtaposition of the two styles. A lot of movies, you know, there's a vogue for shooting all handheld now, and it can be wonderful. I sometimes I find it after a while repetitive and it and it loses its its power because you've it, it's it's just the same over the course of the film. But but back to writing. Um, to me, it's much more a feeling I have in my head that I'm trying to capture, and and trying to get to it. Uh, and and I'm, I'll change things if I think there's another way to get to it, given whatever set of tools I have in that moment. But Greg, as a as a writer, what was incredibly disciplined and, and patient. You know, you, you look at this next to Superbad, and it seems like. You know, it's all happening one right after the other. But when Greg started working on this, there was no super bad in his imagination that hadn't been delivered. And we worked on it together for a very, you know, for years. Um, and along the way, Ann and I kept trying to find, you know, but what are they really feeling in the moment? How is that being expressed? Is this moment true? Is, you know, we kept hitting it at every t- time and a lot of writers you know at a certain point you know just like man i know it's right i just can't explain it but greg stayed at it and really you know went through it line by line by line getting it to a point that felt really true um and at that point you know when when ann and i were were satisfied greg kept going you know he kept on working on the script after that to kind of get it to that that point you know, you get one chance, I, I believe firmly, to get your movie made where it all comes right and where you get the best cast and the best company to make your movie with and, you know, the team that, that, that is put together to, to, you know, believe in your vision. And unless you get the script in that place, it will never happen. And a lot of writers don't have that commitment, discipline, and patience to get to that, that point. And Greg kept going at it. But he was also a really good listener, you know, like he was very good at. He could listen very well because there were a lot of suggestions. We would have suggestions. Miramax had suggestions. The other company that financed the movie had a lot of suggestions. And I think Greg was very good at fielding them really gracefully, using the best ones, and being really firm about what didn't work for him and what what wasn't his movie. And I think if he had not been pretty firmly gelled in what his ideas were, it would have been harder for him to do that. For example, we started out the evening talking about the, the parents, but and there were many, many discussions about giving the parents more backstory and understanding why the dad didn't talk about his alcoholism and all sorts of things about and you know, I think I think you were pretty certain from the beginning that you weren't interested in telling the backstory of the parents. So even though those were notes that came up again and again and again and again and almost as a condition of financing initially. And, uh, hmm. I, I think Greg really did know 
what the important balance of the movie was for him, even though he was really flexible to absorbing good ideas. And a lot of times there's a lot revealed just by little things. I mean, the bottle of booze that they, he finds in the car. You know, that's, that says quite a bit. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I was hoping that those, all those things would have, you know, because everything's relative in a movie, and if, and if the drama is not incredibly high, s- small dramatic things take on a, a bigger... Quality, uh, right. you know, have a, have more oomph. But um, but you know, the father's drinking, for instance, is something. I just wanted that to feel like another example of how the people around him weren't hadn't dealt with their stuff, and that doesn't get solved overnight. And it's not the kind of movie where he gives a big speech to his dad, and his dad says, "You're right, and I'm going to stop drinking." It's 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 much more, you know, life is messy and complicated. And you have to figure out what's best for you, and uh, you know, and it's and it's meant to be a bit sad that that's the place his his, his dad is at. And I hope people experience that as feeling having a kind of verisimilitude that is interesting and not just unsatisfying. Well, so much more interesting than a whole scene about it would have been, I think, ultimately from a cinema point of view. Yeah. Also, in terms of big speeches, I mean, one thing that I think you do that's great in your writing is you like characters will be saying something, they'll sort of go into something that almost feels like they're launching into a speech, but they don't really get what they're talking about. And the audience can see that. Or there's some subtext going on, like writing subtext or writing, you know, where it's sort of clear that the character doesn't get it, despite what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, because most people (laughs) don't say what they mean, so. Right. (laughs) Okay, well, end on that note. Um, So... Thank you so much for sharing the day with us. And Thank thanks, you. Uh, thanks, Ted everybody. Very kind of you to come. Thanks, Ted and Anne. Thanks, and David. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.